There has been so much unnecessary death in this country. It could have been stopped and it could have been stopped short. But somebody a long time ago, it seems, decided not to do it that way. And the whole world is suffering because of it. It should have never happened. This plague should never have happened. It could have been stopped. But people chose not to stop it. All right. Welcome back to the last week in medicine. It's been a while. It has been a while. I'm here too. <laughs> uh, I'm Stephen Jenkins and this is Austin Rupp. And uh, obviously a lot has happened since the last time we recorded. Uh, our last episode was March 17th, 2020. We took a little hiatus. Uh, we kind of lost access to the uh, recording studio in our library. <laughs> Can't hold us down though. We're back. So back in action. We're recording this on my laptop. We are not going to go spend money on fancy microphones because we're not serious people. <laughs> yeah, but some of the really ba- we've we've done really bad recordings in the past, so you guys are used to it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone expects like excellent no. audio on these podcasts. No. So just excellent commentary. Right. Yeah. The riffing. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So like last time we recorded, the United States had. 5,702 cases, and I just checked, and we're up to 1,027,295 cases. Someone could have prevented this. Somebody, somebody could have done it, yes. If, they, if we had intervened early, somebody could have done something. I don't know who you're Senseless to. death. Senseless death. I feel like I should actually find the audio for that. Yeah, you should. Okay. I'm sure that's legal, but... But yeah, there's unfortunately been 59,446 deaths so far in the United States, Um, which, you know, I think with social distancing and, you know, trying to to stay home and all of that, I think we have made a big dent. I think we've done well. But obviously places like New York have been completely ravaged. Um, uh, Utah, however, I mean, we've done okay. People, I think, are like rule followers here. It's a smaller population, more spread out, more suburban. And so I think, you know, we've only had 4,495 cases in Utah, last I checked, uh, with 45 deaths. So our, our mortality rate is kind of on the lower side, but and our case rate. Um, and so, yeah, it's been kind of a bizarre month, right? It's just, it's been, I mean, it's... Things will never be the same, right? Like, that's just the the reality, and I think that's very sobering, um, you know, sort of pre- and post-COVID, and we're not anywhere near post-COVID. Yeah. It's just sort of... Right in the middle of it very, still. Yeah, bizarro world. Um, but we're hanging in there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're lucky that we're still employed. Like, yeah, I think we're, we're very fortunate. We haven't had a bad surge. We still have jobs. Yeah. Our jobs have been easier than usual, actually. Yeah, I mean, with canceling all the elective stuff, like the hospital's pretty empty, and I think people are just staying away from the hospital. Uh, even, you know, if they do have serious medical problems, I think people are trying to ride it out at home, which is also a scary thought, you know, that, and, and some people predict that there'll be kind of a, a surge of, you know, decompensated chronic disease soon. Um, and I, I mean, we're starting to see that a little bit, you know, some kidney failure, liver failure, heart failure, that kind of stuff just kind of builds up until the dam breaks and they got to come in. So I, I think it'll be super interesting to look at like the epidemiologic data, you know, 10 years from now. I mean, I think Spain's life expectancy has gone down. I mean, shifting gears a little bit, but like 
looking at their life expectancy graph over the last several years, there's a clear dip in the last, you know, three months. So just mm-hmm. like looking at COVID-related epidemiology, chronic disease-related epidemiology, I mean, it's just going to be fascinating how this has impacted our world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, The Last Dance came out <laughs> in the last couple of weeks. So uh, are we going to talk about the GOAT or... Jenkins hasn't watched it, but um, huge plug for The Last Dance on ESPN. Uh, grew up with Michael Jordan, and I think we can all take a little inspiration from him um, yeah, in I mean, any times, but especially in trying times. I don't know if I could watch it. I mean, that was like a really traumatic year for the <laughs> Utah Jazz. You know, it's his, his last year, got to the championship finals again. He beat us for the second year in a row. I'm all about take note now, but uh, back then yeah. I was all in on the 90s Bulls. Mm. And, you know, all the the Motley Crew, the characters. He might be the greatest basketball player of all time, but is when he a good might, person? When you say might, you mean is. I, I and, don't know. Uh, no, he's not a good person, but that was, <laughs> that's what makes him goat. Mamba mentality. Wait, wait, wait. Originator wait. of Mamba mentality. I thought Kobe came up with Right, that. but before Kobe, MJ was the real one who... Interesting. Win at all costs, and and can't say enough about that. Anyway. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. All right. So what are we talking about today? I mean, I liked the movie Space Jam. <laughs> Looking forward to the sequel. I'm not, because it's not doesn't have the goat. Okay, well, we've already wasted five minutes of your time. But it's been so. <laughs> but let's get to it. So, I mean, it's been over a month since we did our last one, so we can't really say last week in medicine. This is kind of like the last month. In, in, COVID. In, in COVID, yeah, we're kind of going to stick with just COVID-related topics because I think that's, you know, obviously what's getting cranked out right now in the literature, like, you know, every single article is about COVID, but also it's, you know, it's the most relevant thing to our day-to-day lives right now, and and I think, you know, there's been a lot of therapies that have, people have been pushing as, as possible solutions to COVID, and, and I think a lot of people are kind of abandoning their normal evidence-based medicine scruples and trying stuff that maybe isn't that great and and so i think this is a good opportunity to look and see what is out there evidence-wise for what's going on yeah i I think right last month in covid and uh i'd like to talk about an article in jama um from february or excuse me april 22nd 2020 um it was by dr richardson and colleagues um out of the uh northwell uh medical system in New York. Um, It's called Presenting Characteristics, Comorbidities, and Outcomes Among 5,700 Patients Hospitalized with COVID-19 in the New York City Area. Um, This is basically a case series that attempts to describe the presenting characteristics and outcomes of patients um, admitted to NYC hospitals with COVID. I think this is important because we still don't really know what COVID looks like, how it acts, and, and how to treat it. And we're not. This doesn't focus on the treatment aspect, but um, does try to help us describe what COVID looks like. Um, there was a similar study in the Lancet out of Wuhan, China, but we're going to focus on the U.S. population. So um, it looked at 5,700 patients um, between March 1st, 2020, and April 4th, 2020, that were admitted to this Northwell Health System in New York. Um, The system serves about 11 million people, and uh, the patients had to be, quote-unquote, sufficiently medically ill to warrant admission and had to have a positive PCR nasal swab or nasopharyngeal swab to be included in the study. Um, There's there's a lot of problems with this study that we will talk about here 
in a little bit, but I think that the most important part or some of one of my biggest takeaways was sort of the presenting characteristics and demographic data mm-hmm. of the patients. Um, I, I'll just point out the stuff that I thought was most interesting um, or pertinent. So the median age of these folks was 63, 60.3% were male, 40%-ish were white, And the most common comorbidities were hypertension at 56.6%, obesity at 41.7%, and diabetes at 33.8%. Only about 31% were febrile at presentation, which was defined as a temperature above 38 Celsius, which is a pretty low bar. Um, And only 20.4% had an oxygen saturation of less than 90%, and 27.8% received supplemental oxygen. So... That was weird to me. Um, not not a high rate of fever, not a high rate of hypoxia, and not a high rate of supplemental oxygen. So, so mm-hmm. I kind of questioned why they got hospitalized, but I, but there's a lot of factors that go into that mm-hmm. decision. Um, additionally, 60% had lymphopenia, 58.4% had AST greater than 40, 39% had ALT greater than 60, and um, 22.6% had elevated troponin. Um, I think those are, those are pertinent because that's sort of what we've anecdotally been told. Lymphopenia, acute liver injury, um, troponemia, normal pro-cal, and possibly elevated inflammatory markers have sort of been floating around in the literature, and I think that this corroborates that. So um, lymphopenia, transaminitis, low procalcitonin are consistent with COVID. That was kind of my takeaway from that section mm. of the paper. Um, The outcome data is kind of fraught with issues. Um, It was presented in a lot of different potentially confusing ways. Um, They present some of the data as proportions of those patients who were discharged or died, which was only um, 2,634 out of 5,700. So that's 46%. So some of the data is the percentage of patients of those who got better or died rather quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a confusing way to, to present data. And I don't even know if it's really worth kind of talking about. <laughs> but because yeah, um, like over half the patients were still in the hospital, right? Right, right. That's the point. A lot of the patients were still in the hospital and still alive. So how can you really talk about mortality mm-hmm. and defining mortality in that scenario? Um, you know, the, the stuff that I've kind of picked out of here that I thought was at least still sort of interesting um, was that of the discharged or dead patients, um, 21% of those actually died. So still 80% got discharged, you know, somewhere. Um, 14.2% were treated in the ICU, 12.2% were ventilated, and 3.2% got uh, renal replacement therapy of some kind. Um, Of the 320 of those that were ventilated, 88% died. So you take the 2,000-some-odd patients that were discharged or died, 320 of them got ventilated, and a large percentage of, of those died. So a lot of the patients that got ventilated didn't get discharged but did die. And so, again, confusing, but um, that's kind of what I took away a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um Additionally, length of stay, average length of stay was 4.1 days and 45, 45 patients were readmitted at any point during the study period. They do a little bit of stuff about ACE inhibitors and ARBs, which I didn't think was, I thought that was speculative. And yeah. We're not going to discuss that. So sort of confusing. I would encourage you to read the paper, but use a really critical eye on the outcome 
data section and um, recognize that the denominator co consistently changes, how they present the data consistently changes, and um, focus on sort of how it presents. And, and still, you know, probably if you're ventilated, you're, you're really sick and mm -hmm. um, you, you may not do well. And I, I, you know, digging a little deeper, I think this will help me inform some discussions about intubation specifically with, with coronavirus patients with the caveat that it's still sort of hard to interpret. Mm -hmm. Those are my two cents on this one. Yeah, I, mean, I think over like the demographic data was interesting. Um, but yeah, it felt like, you know, this is a large cohort of patients that they just wanted to get published as soon as possible, I think, just because there's still a dearth of information out in the about the United States population. Like there has been stuff published already from other countries. This was the first big group from the United States, um, but it just feels like a little bit half-baked to me. Um, but, you know, good for them to get the information out there for people to use. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I guess changing gears a little bit, uh, I wanted to go back and look at some of the papers that have been published in the last month about possible therapies. Um, I guess one of the big ones was back in March 18th, the New England Journal published an article uh, a trial of lapinavir, ritonavir in adults hospitalized with severe COVID-19. First author was Dr. B. Cow. And uh, so back in the SARS outbreak uh, in 2003, uh, they did some screening of existing drugs to look for possible therapies. And they identified uh, this drug lapinavir, which is an HIV protease inhibitor, as having in vitro activity against the original SARS virus. And so a lot of people, you know, hypothesized that this may be effective for SARS-CoV-2 as well. Uh, the ritonavir is added to the drug to boost lapinavir's half-life because it inhibits uh, the cytochrome P450. So it's a combo drug, lapinavir-ritonavir. The trade name is Coletra. And so these guys actually went ahead and did a study to test that hypothesis. Uh, the study was randomized, what? but it was not blinded, and it was not placebo-controlled. And so uh, they enrolled patients with a positive PCR test uh, for COVID-19. They had to have chest imaging showing pneumonia and an oxygen saturation of 94 or less on ambient air or a PF ratio of 300 or less. They were able to enroll 199 patients. Uh, half of them were randomized to the study drug, half to standard of care. Uh, their primary outcome was time to clinical improvement, which was defined by improvement of two points on a seven-point ordinal scale. Um, that scale ranged from 1, which was not hospitalized with resumption of normal activities, to 7, which was death. Um, I don't know how you really improve from death if you like start out at a 7, but other <laughs> outcomes included mortality at 28 days, duration of mechanical ventilation, duration of hospitalization, and viral RNA detection. Uh, the study found no significant difference between standard of care and the drug for the primary outcome, and there was no difference in mortality either and the percentages of patients with detectable viral RNA were similar. So really, there was no benefit from this drug, but good for them for actually doing a randomized trial to, to see if they could show benefit. Yeah, I, I thought there were a few interesting sort of off-topic off topics here. Like, is it required in a trial that you have to say, like, oh, this warrants further investigation. Like, we should think about this. You know, they mentioned, like, treating earlier with Coletra might be beneficial. They mm. mentioned, you know, in the modified intention to treat analysis that uh, they did get one day, uh, you know, one day earlier of a two-point 
um, improvement in this modified intention to treat analysis. So they were like, that warrants further investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, does it really like, let's just like Coletra's to bed now, right? Like it was a randomized trial. It really didn't work. And, uh, this ordinal scale is a little weird as well. Although that's validated in other viral illnesses like influenza. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, like I thought, I always think that's kind of funny. Just like we have to keep this <laughs> train, keep rolling. this conversation going. Yes. I think, yeah. Whenever you write a paper, that's just part of I the know, template, <laughs> um, recommend further yeah, I thought they investigation. all. Another interesting thing was that they noted viral shedding up to twenty days in severe illness and um, thirty-seven days at sort of the extreme end of viral shedding. So yeah, that's, that's scary. Yeah. Uh, the next trial I wanted to talk about was from March twentieth, two thousand twenty, and this was the now very famous French study of hydroxychloroquine published in the International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents. Very prestigious. Heavy hitter. Impact factor of infinity. Well, (laughs) we shouldn't shouldn't really make fun of journals. You're right. We we don't publish anything. This wasn't the New England Journal. (laughs) Right. Um, But the first author was Dr. Philippe Gautre, and the senior author was uh, Dr. Didier Raoult, who bears a striking resemblance to Donald Trump's gastroenterologist. I just think it's worth Googling that and looking at how, you know. Is his gastroenterologist the one that said he's the healthiest man he's ever seen or whatever? The healthiest man to ever be elected to the Ah, presidency. There you go. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so this study has been somewhat controversial in large part because President Trump and his minions at Fox News immediately seized upon the results to start pushing hydroxychloroquine to the masses. Uh, This was problematic since the study has significant limitations, is by no means definitive. Although hydroxychloroquine has been around for a while, it still has risks, including prolonging the QT interval, which can lead to torsades and it can cause bone marrow suppression, and I read that it can also reduce the seizure threshold, which I did not know. Uh, I would say we use it all the time in people with, like, lupus, and I feel Mm -hmm. like we use it pretty freely in those folks without worrying too much. But, um, yeah, this this study just kind of made me take a second thought about that. So it was an open-label, meaning unblinded, non-randomized clinical trial, so basically a prospective cohort study. Uh, 42 patients that had PCR-confirmed positive COVID-19 in France, in the city of Marseille. They had 26 patients that received hydroxychloroquine, 16 received usual care. So they did hydroxychloroquine, 200 milligrams, three times a day for 10 days. Uh, There were six patients that also received azithromycin to prevent bacterial superinfection. Just because. But yeah, that was just based (laughs) on clinical judgment of treating clinicians. Like there was no you know, systematic way of deciding who got that. Just because. Yeah. Uh, So patients who declined to do the study or the intervention were just included as controls, (laughs) which I've never seen done before. Um, I don't know if that's standard or not. They also just used other patients at other hospitals as controls. Definitely nothing standard going on here. The inclusion criteria was you had to be hospitalized over 12 years old and have a positive test. The exclusion criteria was an allergy or contraindication to hydroxychloroquine. The primary outcome was percentage of patients with detectable viral shedding on day six. The secondary outcomes were time to normalization of temperature, respiratory rate, uh, and then length of stay, mortality, and side effects. So in their results, they said that 88% of controls had detectable viral shedding at day six, 
compared to only 30% of patients receiving hydroxychloroquine. And they claim that zero out of six patients, so um, zero out of six patients receiving hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin had detectable virus at day six. So 100% of patients who got that combo were effectively cured at day six. Absolutely. So those are like pretty big, big uh, outcomes to report. Um, the, uh, let's see. So some of the issues with this study. Uh, the primary outcome was different than what was specified in their protocol. Um, they, so they were going to do like data on viral shedding at multiple days, and, and they really um, only did it for day six, and that data wasn't even available for all of the patients. Um, uh, there was no blinding or randomization, so obviously that could bias towards a benefit from, from the treatment. And there were six patients um, that were lost to follow-up in the treatment group. Well, lost to follow-up. Like they didn't even try to follow I don't know. There were Three of them went to an ICU. Right. One of them died. Right. So and, lost to follow-up because yeah. they got worse. <laughs> yeah. So they just excluded them <laughs> right, from the right. results. Yeah. Lost to follow-up is an interesting term, yeah. know, choice of wording there. Four of the patients who dropped out were PCR positive at the time of dropout. So it's not clear if they would have been positive, you know, after day six because it just wasn't checked. Um, and then five of the 16 control patients did not even have a PCR performed on day six. So the primary outcome was assessed differently in the two groups. So all, all sorts of problems with this, this study. Right. Um, and, and then they had all these secondary outcomes that they said they were looking at, and then they didn't actually report any of them. So like, I don't, I don't know, like they didn't. <laughs> anyway. Very flawed. It's a small study. Wacky conclusions. Flawed methodology. Wacky conclusions. I think that they say... Quote, because our first results are so significant and evident, I think if you, end quote, if you uh, are saying that your results are so significant and evident, you probably don't actually have significant and evident results. Anyway, yeah, yeah it, kind of the OG of crappy trials that started this whole thing. You know, and I think it's worth mentioning a little bit, and we can talk about this more later, um, just to editorialize. We're, we, we are poking fun a little bit here, but also... We recognize sort of how scary this is and the, and the thought of not being able to do anything for a disease is not something that we're used to. And so that causes us to react emotionally, do bad science, and, and sort of grasp at straws, mm -hmm. I think. You know, mm -hmm. name one other thing where it's like the patient comes in and you are sort of just saying, I have absolutely nothing to offer you. You know, we have – we always have a medicine. Like name any – any condition that we treat and like we pretty much have a medication or something or a procedure sure. that we can do for you Although, here we are like oxygen and supportive care and yeah and but i mean that's, that's what we do for any viral pneumonia but you know besides influenza you can which, where you can give oseltamivir but right we got something but, for flu right but like other respiratory viral pneumonias like there really isn't much to do except supportive care, and that's really all that we can do for this. Okay, so you named yeah. one thing. Name something else. <laughs> I don't know. Liver failure? Transplant. Oh, okay. There's a pie in the sky. Like, there's no pie in the sky here. There's nothing, basically. Well, ECMO. You know, you could live on ECMO <laughs> for the rest of your life. All right. Anyway, we're all scared, so we're not – we are poking fun at some of the methodologies of some of these trials – but um, we also want to emphasize that thinking creatively and outside the box is also going to be very important. And uh, we are not doing any of these trials. We fully recognize that. So um, we applaud good science. We applaud the efforts. And we want to keep rolling. So uh, there was another trial that came out April 14th 
2020, um, not in a journal yet. I believe it was submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine. It's a it's a new preprint trial of hydroxychloroquine from China, posted by Dr. Tang et al. Um, it was a, it's a multi-center, open-label, randomized trial of 150 patients with COVID-19. There was no placebo, and it wasn't blinded. Um, they gave huge doses of hydroxychloroquine, 1,200 milligrams for three days and 800 milligrams for two to three weeks. Uh, the patients in the study had relatively mild disease, and they started therapy after having symptoms for an average of 16 to 7 days, so kind of later in the course. And the primary endpoint was viral clearance at 28 days, and ended up there was no difference between the groups. There was also no difference in the uh, secondary endpoints of improvement in symptoms over one month. Um, adverse effects uh, occurred in 30% of patients who got hydroxychloroquine, mostly diarrhea, um, versus 9% of patients who got standard therapy. There was also a trend towards more progression to severe disease in the treatment arm, although that wasn't statistically significant. I think the takeaway from that trial was they were using massive doses of hydroxychloroquine, more than most people are using. They also started it pretty late in the course, and you know, if there's any theoretical benefit to hydroxychloroquine, you would think it would be like early on during viral replication. Um, but in any case, I don't think we should be using hydroxychloroquine for patients unless it's in part of a trial. And so like our institution, we're doing a hydroxychloroquine trial, so a lot of patients are getting randomized to hydroxychloroquine. I think in a, in a research setting, that's okay. I don't think it would be wise or recommended for people to just use hydroxychloroquine uh, in patients that aren't part of a trial. That is available at our institution, though. What do you mean? Using it outside of a trial. Yeah, I wouldn't do it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think a big... I. I think a big issue here is, is, is the national and local perceptions of, of these medications and sort of what I was yeah. talking about earlier, sort of feeling helpless and wanting to do something. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to combat some of the misinformation out there. Sure. And I agree. I, I don't recommend it to my patients right now. Um, and equipoise is, is, you know, sort of the name of the game right now. But, um, yeah, I, you know, there was another trial that showed, uh, that used high doses of chloroquine and showed toxicity with chloroquine. So I think hydroxychloroquine, you know, is potentially sort of a similar, you know, mechanism, but not, maybe not quite as toxic. So mm -hmm. a lot of caveats with the use of these medications, both mm -hmm. on and off trial. I also wonder about viral clearance. Why do we keep using that as an endpoint? It's not a hard clinical endpoint, um, presumably. Yeah, but I guess it's like a, you know, if it, you're probably not going to see a huge mortality signal with most of these drugs, but if you can show that it's like, you know, helping people clear the virus faster, I think that's what they're trying to show. I guess the question then is how useful is that? I don't know. I think as a surrogate <laughs> outcome, it's pretty good. Fair yeah. Enough. I think it's I think it's what we have for now, but it's not my favorite. That's mm. my point. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there was one other big hydroxychloroquine uh, study recently published. This one was posted uh, April 21st, 2020. I guess I say it was it was published. It wasn't actually published. It's another preprint. It's on medrxiv.org, um, which apparently is a new thing. People are just posting all of their preprint on there. So these are not peer-reviewed. So that last one I talked about by Tang et al., not peer-reviewed. Same thing for this one. Um, but this one was in the press a lot. This is the outcomes of hydroxychloroquine usage in United States veterans hospitalized with COVID-19. 
so the question they're trying to answer is, does hydroxychloroquine improve mortality and reduce need for ventilation in patients with COVID-19? Uh, the first author was uh, Joseph Magagnoli. Senior author was Dr. Uh, Jayakrishna Ambadi, funded by the NIH uh, and the VA. And it was basically a national retrospective cohort study using the VA database. So that's nice. It's a really big data set, right? Um, they only had 368 patients, uh, veterans with COVID-19 admitted to the hospital. The study period That's was from crazy. March 19th to April 11th. Well, I mean, what do you mean? That's of, of the whole VA system, I think they, they said, I thought I read that only 385 veterans had gotten it through April 11th uh-huh. and been hospitalized in VA hospitals. Sure. Out of a million patients with covid only 385 well, are veterans? We're at a million now. Back then, we weren't at a million. And I think, too, the VA, just anecdotally, I heard, was not as fast at getting the tests going. Mm. And so I imagine there was a delay in diagnosing mm. a lot of people. But anyway, they had a, a cohort of 368 <laughs> patients. Um, and so the, uh, the exposure was hydroxychloroquine. 97 patients got that. Or hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. 113 patients got that versus standard of care, which was 158 patients. Um, So they included anyone with a positive test that had clinical info available, like BMI, vital signs, and where they were discharged to. They excluded patients uh, if they didn't have that clinical data available, and they also ended up excluding all the female patients from the analysis because there were only 17. Um, The primary outcome was uh, death or need for mechanical ventilation. Uh, They also had the secondary outcome of death among patients who required ventilation. Um, and, uh, so the majority of the patients were African-American, um, majority of the patients had an oxygen over 90% in all the groups. Uh, it was interesting, uh, 24.7% of the hydroxychloroquine patients had lymphocytes less than 800 versus 31% of the hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin patients versus only 14% of the standard of care patients. So that was statistically significant. Also, the CRP was higher in patients who got uh, the hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin or just hydroxychloroquine by itself. So, you know, based on the, the kind of the table one characteristics, in this case, it was actually table two, um, you know, it appeared that by labs anyway, the patients that got the therapies were sicker. Um, so primary outcome results, the results of rates of death, it was at 28% in the hydroxychloroquine arm, in the hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, and 11.4% for standard of care. So that was like a big, you know, big difference. Hydroxychloroquine is killing people. It it, it makes it look like hydroxychloroquine is killing people. people. Yeah. And and so, and then rates of ventilator use were were similar among the groups. It was 13% for the hydroxychloroquine, 7% for hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, and then 14% uh, for standard of care. Um, so then they did some like uh, propensity score matching to try to account for any confounding. Um, and uh, they, they said that compared to the standard of care group, the risk of death from any cause was higher in the hydroxychloroquine group. So their adjusted hazard ratio was 2.6 with a p-value of, of 0.03. Um, but, but, but it wasn't different in the hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin group. That adjusted hazard ratio was 1.14. So, um, and then for ventilation, it was similar in all groups. And so, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Um, You know, maybe hydroxychloroquine alone might have been harmful, but then like the hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, there was really no difference uh, 
in this in the standard different from the standard of care for mortality, which doesn't really make sense to me, uh, unless there was like an overwhelming number of bacterial pneumonias in the hydroxychloroquine group and they weren't getting the azithromycin to, <laughs> to, to treat that. But I don't think there's any evidence of that. So indication bias. Yeah, I think the the limitations. Um, you know, there were baseline differences in clinical severity across the three groups that could have influenced things. Um, and the, uh, I don't know, hydroxychloroquine plus or minus azithromycin was more likely to be prescribed in patients with more severe disease, right? So that's like a big confounder that even with propensity score matching, you can't probably get around. And so exactly. I think that really their, their big conclusion at the end was we need randomized controlled <laughs> trials. And it's like, no, duh. Uh, I think right. this is just... But I mean, this was another. But I think it gives you a little ammo for not doing hydroxychloroquine. You can feel good about not yeah, doing exactly. it without without a better trial. I think um, you know the the news media really ran with this paper, even though it hasn't even been published yet, and just said, "Look, this proves that hydroxychloroquine is bad." And you know, I think you right. know Trump they wanted to rub that in Trump's about. face, yeah, yeah. and and it's like, well, I mean, we can't really make that conclusion from this paper. This is a retrospective cohort study, so it, it's not the end all. But it was interesting. Yeah, Sam Brown did post a review of this and talks a lot about indication bias and, you know, sort of does use a uh, chemotherapy kills patients sort of analogy. You know, mm -hmm. if you do a, a retrospective study of patients who get chemotherapy, yeah, they're probably more likely to die than those who don't, but that's because of the cancer, right? Yeah, so, they just have worse cancer. Right. right, and he also mentioned that they did not propensity score, you know, match or whatever or... or uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, adjust? <laughs> adjust, yeah. For some sort of clinician assessment of trajectory or worsening and code status. So I thought those mm. were interesting points, like in something to think about in future trial design. Did the clinician think that you were going to get worse and were you DNR, DNI? Mm -hmm. Because those probably represent severity of illness as well mm -hmm. and opposed as opposed to all the normal ones of BMI, Charleston comorbidity index, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So. Anyway. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, as always, we need better trials. RCTs. Better trials. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just had one more quick one. I know we've been going Stay on with for a us. while. This one's April 10th, 2020. This was the a New England Journal article, the compassionate use of remdesivir for patients with severe COVID-19. First so author, good. Dr. Jay so Gray. good compassionate use. I think it? this was more compassionate for Gilead stocks. <laughs> so this was a report on 61 patients hospitalized with COVID-19 who received remdesivir. This is a nucleotide analog that inhibits RNA polymerase, has shown in vitro activity against multiple viruses, including Ebola, and uh, also against SARS-CoV-2. Should be noted that this drug has no indication for any disease. When they studied it in Ebola patients, it did not work. Okay, so they're still looking for a disease to treat uh, with this drug. And so, lo and behold, comes a great disease, SARS-CoV-2. No, let's not speculate. So only 53 of the patients uh, in the 61 had data that could be analyzed, so, th uh, so they excluded eight of them. Patients were from the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Japan. 57% uh, were on mechanical ventilation, and 8% were on ECMO. 18% uh, of patients on mechanical ventilation died. 5% of patients who did not receive mechanical ventilation died. They reported that 68% of patients who got remdesivir had clinical improvement, which they measured as a change in their oxygen support class, uh, I think which was another kind of ordinal scale. 
no primary outcome was specified, uh, and there was no placebo group, and patients were not randomized, so you really can't draw any conclusions from this paper. Uh, other problems include a very small sample size, incomplete data, no primary endpoint, and the pharma company, Gilead, basically got to choose the patients that they, you know, allowed, you know, you had to apply for this compassionate use. They got to choose the patients, and then they wrote the manuscript. So I think it's kind of a bunk article, but, you know, uh, I, I saw today that the, the Dow is up because Gilead was able to, like, enroll enough patients or something for their endpoints. Well, they so, do have an RCT. There is an RCT ending. ongoing right. against placebo. Yeah. Yeah. So... Until that comes out. Yeah, I'm definitely, I mean, hold, holding my breath on, on remdesivir. We're, we're doing a remdesivir trial at our institution, uh, five days versus 10 days, no placebo. I've had one patient so far that was uh, randomized to remdesivir. I think she only received it for like two or three days, and then I discharged her. It's an IV drug, so like you, you, know, you can't give it to them after they leave. So I think that's going to be uh, fun data to analyze. <laughs> Well, it's going to work, so we'll need to know the dose. Yeah, so I guess if it doesn't work, then why, why check five versus ten days? Anyway, yeah. Everyone's really excited to do clinical trials right now, though. That is interesting. Like, I've, you know, never, like, never had sort of coordinators reaching out to me yeah. with such prevalence as, as I currently do. Not um, since uh, vitamin C, yeah. <laughs> so. So, yeah, I think overall... I don't, I mean, we, we've said a lot of different sort of takeaway points. I just wanted to add that I think the way that information is getting disseminated and sort of um, put out there has been really interesting for me. Um, I wanted to highlight um, MCRIT and lit COVID as... Well, it's actually, I think, POMCRIT, it's, anyway, yeah, the POMCRIT blog by Josh Barkas, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I think, it, well, if you go to MCRIT.org, you can click on COVID-19 book mm -hmm. on the right side, yeah. and he keeps a really good Great blog, resource. Great resource for sort of on-the-fly knowledge of anything you could want about COVID. And he's updating it all the time. Lit COVID has supposedly all the papers currently published about COVID, so you can search different terms and authors hmm. and stuff like hmm. that, so I wanted good. to point that out. There's a bunch of sort of one-pager on-the-fly guides and stuff. Twitter's been great if you find a couple of people that you sort of trust and think are putting good information out there. Yeah, I really like Rahul Ganatra. That guy breaks down papers real nicely. Yeah. I would recommend following him. And so, um, hang in there. Yeah. Stay safe. Stay home if you can. Stay safe. Stay home. Don't feel too helpless. Good trials are on the way. <laughs> and uh, well, I don't know. What does your dad say again? None of it's going to work. Yeah, Dr. Rupp of Nebraska. No endorsement. Dr. Rupp Sr. He, he's not, he doesn't know we're saying this. He says it's reckless, irresponsible, and potentially harmful, these therapies, hmm. sort of outside of a, a trial. Cool. Um, yeah. No, so. I, I, I kind of agree with that. Don't do anything outside of a trial. Yeah. Okay. I saw a couple funny quotes. Show me a drug that doesn't have in vitro activity against the virus. Wait, who said that? Someone on Twitter. <laughs> Can't attribute it to the right person. Sorry if you're listening. Good quote. I think I saw that too. And, yeah. and I think Prasad was talking about treating um, with antivirals at conception to get it early. You know, you got to get it early enough. <laughs> early in the disease course. <laughs> but apparently, this disease is not transmitted sexually. <laughs> Good to know. I did read that. 
in many of the fluids, but yeah. Not, okay. not the most important. <laughs> well, I don't know when our next episode is going to be. How I, much of this are we going to have? I think we're going to play it by ear right now. Yeah. Most, mostly we got to see on how, how terrible this sounds. Mostly you got to see how Austin's feeling, and then uh, <laughs> we may come back next week. We'll see. Maybe we do need to buy some fancy microphones. Anyway, we'll see you later.